there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Don Hall, and this is the Peculiar Journeys Podcast. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast designed to see the water that surrounds us. Hi folks, it's me, Dr. Thompson, come to read you some more stuff. Here, that Oh, I'll put on my headphone, my head uh, lamp. Yeah, this is out of the Hell's Angels book, one of the end of it. And actually, I wrote this thing, when I, I, I used to do this, just to cool out, uh, well, every night, go somewhere. And the park was always a good place to run. Uh, an evil place to run with wet roads and uh, those curves. <coughs> and I did have the fastest bike ever tested by Hot Rod Magazine. The uh, BSA Lightning 650. Okay. This is the first draft. I can still barely see when I came back the apartment uh, overlooking Gizar Stadium and the corner of Hate and Stanion the park my eyes were still uh, kind of wind burned and uh, I just sat down and uh, I wrote this like a photograph yeah you can't use audio tape at that speed okay Little kicker. Little midnight on the coast highway. All my life, my heart is salt. A thing I cannot name. Remembered line from a long forgotten poem. I don't remember who wrote that. Remy T.S. Eliot. Hard Lake Liner. Yeah, this is the end of the uh, Hell's Angels saga. Months later, when I rarely saw the angels, I still had the legacy of the big machine. 400 pounds of chrome and deep red noise to take it on the coast highway and cut loose at 3 in the morning when all the cops were looking over on 101. My first crash had wrecked the bike completely and it took several months to have it rebuilt. After that I decided to ride it differently. I would stop pushing my luck on curves, always wear a helmet, and try to keep within range of the nearest speed limit. My insurance had already been cancelled and my driver's license was hanging by a thread. So it was always at night, like a werewolf, that I would take the thing out for an honest run down the coast. I would start in Golden Gate Park, thinking only to run a few long curves to clear my head. But in a matter of minutes, I'd be out at the beach with the sound of the engine in my ears, the surf booming up on the seawall, and a fine empty road stretching all the way down to Santa Cruz. Not even a gas station in the whole 70 miles. The only public light along the way is an all-night diner down around Rockaway Beach. 
There was no helmet on those nights, no speed limit, and no cooling it down on the curves. The momentary freedom of the park was like the one unlucky drink that shoves a wavering alcoholic off the wagon. I would come out of the park at the soccer field and pause for a moment at the stop sign, wondering if I knew anyone parked out there on the midnight humping strip. Then in the first gear, forgetting the cars and letting the beast wind up. 35, 45, and then in the second, and wailing through the light at Lincoln Way. Not worried about green or red signals, but only some other werewolf loony who might be pulling out too slowly to start his own run. Not many of these, and with three lanes on a wide curve, a bike coming hard has plenty of room to get around almost anything. Then into third, the boomer gear. Pushing 75 in the beginning of a wind stream in the ears. A pressure on the eyeballs like diving into water off a high board. Bent forward, far back on the seat, and a rigid grip on the handlebars as the bike starts jumping and wavering in the wind. Taillights far up ahead coming closer, faster, and suddenly zap, going right past and leaning down for a curve near the zoo where the road swings out to sea. The dunes are flatter here. And on windy days, sand blows across the highway, piling up in thick drifts as deadly as any oil slick. Instant loss of control, a crashing cartwheeling slide and maybe one of those two-inch notices in the paper the next day. An unidentified motorcyclist was killed last night when he failed to negotiate a turn on Highway 1. Unquote, end. Indeed, but no sand this time. So the lever goes up into fourth. And now there's no sound except wind. Screw it all the way over. Reach through the handlebars to raise the headlight beam. The needle leans down on a hundred. And wind burned eyeballs, trained to see down the center line. Trying to provide a margin for the reflexes. But with the throttle screwed on, there's only the barest margin. And no room at all for mistakes. It has to be done right. And that's when the strange music starts. When you stretch your luck so far that fear becomes exhilaration. And vibrates along your arms. You can barely see it a hundred. The tears flow back so fast that they vaporize before they get to your ears. The only sounds are wind and a dull roar floating back from the mufflers. You watch the white line and try to lean with it, howling through a turn to the right, then to the left, and down the long hill to Pacifico. Letting off now, watching for cops, but only until the next dark stretch and another few seconds on the edge. The edge. There is no honest way to explain it. Because the only people who really know where it is are the ones who have gone over. The others, the living, are those who push their control as far as they thought they could handle it, and then pull back, or slowed down, or did whatever they had to, when it came time to choose between now and later. But the edge is still out there, or maybe it's in. The association of motorcycles with LSD is no accident of publicity. They are both a means to an end, to the place of definitions. San Francisco, 1965. That was... As you guessed, Hunter S. Thompson reading The Edge. Given that my fourth tattoo is a direct quote from Hunter, a little of the man himself was appropriate. Now, Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is arguably the greatest chronicle of drug-soaked, addle-brained, rollicking good times ever written. 
The novel first appeared as a two-part series in Rolling Stone magazine in 1971, was printed as a book in 1972. Unsurprisingly, this tale of a long weekend road trip has gone down in the annals of American pop culture as one of the strangest journeys ever taken. Famed for lurid descriptions of illegal drug use, its early retrospective on the culture of the 1960s, and its popularization of Thompson's highly subjective blend of fact and fiction, it is a classic example of what later became known as gonzo journalism. But even more than that, as these seven priceless quotes show, it's a timeless guide to living life in the fast lane, Hunter S. Thompson style. The quotes are, quote, Good people drink good beer. Quote, Every now and then when your life gets complicated and the weasels start closing in, the only cure is to load up on heinous chemicals and then drive like a bastard from Hollywood to Las Vegas with the music at top volume or at least a pint of ether. Quote, Take it from me, there's nothing like a job well done except quiet enveloping darkness at the bottom of a bottle of Jim Beam after a job done anyway at all. Quote, the press is a gang of cruel faggots. Journalism is not a profession or a trade. It is a cheap catch-all for fuck-offs and misfits. A false doorway to the backside of life. A filthy, piss-ridden little hole nailed off by the building inspector. Just deep enough for a wino to curl up from the sidewalk and masturbate like a chimp at a zoo cage. <laughs> I love that one. Quote, No cop was ever born who isn't a sucker for a finely executed high-speed controlled drift all the way around one of those cloverleaf freeway interchanges. Few people understand the psychology of dealing with a highway traffic cop. Your normal speeder will panic and immediately pull over to the side when he sees the big red light behind him. And then we will start apologizing, begging for mercy. This is wrong. It arouses contempt in the cop heart. The thing to do when you're running along about a hundred or so and you suddenly find a red light flashing CHP tracker on your trail, what you want to do then is accelerate. Quote, in a closed society where everybody's guilty, the only crime is getting caught. In a world of thieves, the only final sin is stupidity. Quote, we must ride this strange torpedo out until the end. And of course, my favorite Hunter S. Thompson quote of all time, quote, no sympathy for the devil, keep that in mind. Buy the ticket, take the ride, and if it occasionally gets a little heavier than what you had in mind, well, maybe chalk it off to forced conscious expansion. Tune in, freak out, get beaten. I'd immersed myself in the writing of Thompson before, but 2011 found me poring over his books and essays like a renaissance of thought. What the words and attitude Met one meant one thing when I was 22 years old, and what they meant at 44 years old was a gulf the size of the desert he wrote about driving across. Do I need to remind you that I've been doing events around here for nearly four years? She barked at me loud enough to stop most people in the open cubicle environment of the public radio mines and pop their heads up like gophers checking out the thunder. I stood up. 
Only if I need to remind you I've been producing events in Chicago since you were 10 years old, I declared, also loud enough for the underwriters, reporters, producers, and the crew of Sound Opinions to hear. When I came on board at WBEZ in 2007, I was hired to be nothing more than the house manager for the NPR mega-hit game show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. After a few months of typical overachieving, the lead producer, Rod Abid, told me to watch the show and give him notes on suggested improvements to the front of house procedures. I gave him a five-page list. He handed it back and said, do this. Well, I was hired on as the first ever events person in the history of the 75-year-old station. The director of partnerships, Breeze Richardson, was made my direct supervisor, and I was given a minimal budget and instructions to create stewardship events. Now, Breeze, she was amazing. She'd started off as a producer for Worldview and moved her way over to partnerships when she single-handedly created Chicago Amplified, an online archive of recordings of partner programs. All live events on tape, it made sense that I report to her even though we both were sort of alpha and we both sort of liked to run the show. Now, in those first years... We were like a married couple, working together, squabbling constantly, be always, always with the sense that we were going into uncharted territory as a team of two. She administered, I was the producing muscle. We were an almost unbeatable team with two exceptions. Breeze was a University of Chicago graduate, which, which carries with it a built-in condescension to anyone not a graduate of the University of Chicago. And if you've met one, you understand that and she was a mother of a toddler. The result was that she frequently spoke to almost everyone like they were a grade school kid. Consequently, she tended to alienate people essential to our successful production of events, and I had to back-channel favors after she pissed someone off. The second exception was that I'm a stubborn asshole in my own right and cherish autonomy more than either recognition or compensation in my work life. Breeze was a micromanager. The combination caused almost daily friction. And if there was a third exception, and there is, it was that we were both loud. In a public radio station, which is a bit like working in a library, our cubicles were adjacent. And we often had conversations over the wall. Sometimes they got a little you know, heated, a little more excited, whatever, and they were loud. That separated us. It practically drove everyone around us nuts. Now, those exceptions aside, we spent 2008 through 2010 knocking it out of the park. We created the first ever winter block party for Chicago hip-hop arts in partnership with young Chicago authors and the brilliant Kevin Koval. The first Chicago chef battle. The first global activism expo. Events that centered on women authors that sold out the Victory Gardens Theater on a Super Bowl Sunday. An event that brought together 10 of Chicago's local art centers. The celebration of the anniversary of the Manual of Style. Collaborations with the Chicago Children's Museum, the Chicago History Museum, Museum. Unfortunately, around 2011, Breeze started to get shut out of the hierarchy at WBEZ. Her amplified program was on the chopping block and her shrill complaints started giving her a reputation as someone difficult to work with. She needed some wins. Driven quite a bit by recognition, she started looking to take credit for the, the work that we both did. And suddenly, my performance reviews went from the A-plus praise fests that I was used to to a catalog of my weaknesses, almost all of them I felt were unfair, but of course I would. 
our work marriage became her openly criticizing almost everything I did from how I wrote emails to how I managed the tickets. Meanwhile, on the home front, I had moved in with Alice. After the night of the nine punches and the broken window, I'd accepted the conditions that that evening was entirely my fault and that I was never allowed to speak of it to anyone. Our daily life was comprised of me being told what to do around the house, when to do it, and how badly I had done it when I did it. (laughs) At one point, I found myself getting mild panic attacks going to the grocery store because there would always be, always be, at least one thing on the list I'd managed to fuck up. I mean, who knew breadcrumbs had sugar in them sometimes? Sometimes the kale wasn't as fresh as she wanted, the wrong brand of fucking kidney beans. How I did the dishes was insufficient. How I structured my office, which by the way was the only room in her Portage Park bungalow I was allowed to put my stuff into and decorate. Everything else had to stay in boxes down in the basement. My office was a source of constant criticism. By the fall of 2011, the only moments I had on any given day when I wasn't being told how utterly subpar I was, was in the car going to and from Navy Pier. I had it at home, I got it at work. I was trapped in between two people who had decided that I simply could do nothing right and were both committed to letting me and everyone around me know what a piece of shit I was. My friends noticed. I was walking a bit hunched over with a hollow thousand yard stare in my eyes. My confidence was sapped. I simply wasn't the person I'd been before. I was beaten. According to the Urban Dictionary, by the ticket, take the ride is shorthand for creating and being involved in a situation that may get you in way over your head, but deciding that turning back would be a rather uninteresting option. On my 45th birthday, February 3rd, 2012, I wrote, quote, Every morning as you slowly wake up and wish for one more hour of sleep, you get to choose. Do you want to get on that crazy train and ride today? You get to choose whether or not you want to experience things or live inside your insular world and chill. You get to choose whether your day will be filled with people and disappointment and thrills and anger and dancing and eating and fucking and fighting or navel-gazing and dreaming of tomorrow. Each day is one more chance to master the ride or avoid riding at all. You don't get any better at it unless you pony up to the old roadie with the paunch, the acne-scarred mug, and the tattered ACDC t-shirt, hand him your purchase ticket, and say, one, please. You don't improve your understanding of the game unless you play and fail and succeed and fall on your ass and get back up again. Doers and watchers, the world is filled with both. We all balance on the edge of a hole filled with chaos and misfortune, balance beam walking one foot in front of the other, waving our arms to keep from falling into that hole. Some of us stay perched above and, in a whiff of superiority, look down at the fools who are wading and drowning in homelessness or heartache or depression and breathe a sigh of relief that it is not us, but it could be. We all deserve it. 
Every fucking one of us deserves it. All it takes is one little slip and you're bathing in sorrow and regret. But forward, forward momentum, forward momentum is worth the risk. Living life like a fucking wild man is worth it. Don't look down or behind you. Look ahead. Straight ahead. I bought my ticket. And baby, I intend to take that ride until the lights go out and the patrons trickle away. And I'll eat a fucking corn dog on my way out. On the same day I wrote that, I had the phrase, buy the ticket, take the ride, from a design by my old friend Regan Davis tattooed on my inner left forearm. Breeze thought it looked like a CTA ad. It kind of does, actually. And Alice hated it so much she canceled my birthday party that she had planned for that night. And that's the podcast. Next week I have more of the WNEP theater saga in the 90s. Thanks for listening. Peculiar Journeys is a weekly storytelling podcast produced, voiced, and edited by myself in my apartment above a bar in Wicker Park, Chicago. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or catch it on SoundCloud, or download it from DonHallChicago.com. You can assist Peculiar Journeys financially, if you can, by becoming a VIP patron on www.patreon.com slash peculiarjourneys. Journeys.